Well, this morning we continue our series, Form and Function, and this is the fourth week that we are living into this series. And, and I want to teach you one of my favorite song lyrics, and we're going we're gonna to recite it together, and then we're going to say it various points in it. So different points in the sermon today, I'm going to say, hold up, wait a minute, and you guys are going to say, let me put some love in it. You ready? Hold up. Wait a minute, let me put some love in it. Let's try it again with a little bit more passion. Hold up, wait a minute. All right. So this morning we are talking about 1 Corinthians 13 as kind of this glue uh, uh, that makes the gifts of the Spirit work. And that glue is love. Now throughout this series we've been talking about what it means to have a healthy church Form and function. And so when I was in Florida with the girls, we ran into this thing called the Moldomatic. Does anybody remember the Moldomatic? The Moldomatic was this, I don't know how to explain it now. It's, it, it is this thing from the 1950s that you put money into and it forms a toy for you right on the spot. And so we were at Gatorland, and you might have seen the picture of me wrestling with an alligator on Facebook, right? And, and in Gatorland, throughout the various points, they have these machines called Moldomatics. And you put, I don't know, I think it was $3 in, and there's these silver hands that come in, and this goop gets poured into it, and then it makes all this fun noises, it kind of... Do uh, you guys remember Lost in Space, the show from the 50s? It kind of reminds me of the robot that says, Danger, Will Robinson, danger. And, and, and so it shakes it around. It makes a whole bunch of noises. There's tubes flying everywhere. And then it goes, whoosh, and it releases. And a little plastic toy falls out. And, and our girls had fun making this, this mold of a green man riding a green alligator. When Paul gives this kind of, letter to the church in Corinth, this 1 Corinthians letter. He's giving them ideas on how the church should form and function. In many ways, he's giving them the foundations that are the moldomatic of the church. He's giving them the DNA that makes up those silver hands, so when the Holy Spirit and life pours that goop in, it makes what it's supposed to make. Now, churches look a whole bunch of different ways, and they act a whole bunch of different ways. They worship a whole bunch of different ways. And we have some vertical ability to build on the foundations of what God has given us. In other words, we can make a red alligator instead of a green alligator in the automatic. But at the end of the day, we share the same foundations. We, we have in us uh, these instructions or foundations from God on what the church should look like, what shape it should take, what form it should take, what function it should take, what the molding arms of the church should look like. And we saw how we've been introduced to the idea of communion as one of those foundations. We've looked at how uh, the body learning to work together in collaboration and in unity, sharing our gifts is one of the foundations. We've looked at Paul's introduction on the gifts of the Spirit, on prophecy and speaking in tongues and having words of knowledge as one of those foundations. And this morning we are going to see Paul talk about love. And, and really he's talking about love in a way where he wants them to understand that it is the glue for all those foundations he's given so far. And, and from this point on, 
he is really going to then unpack the, the practical sides of what it means to, to use those gifts of the spirits and those unities. But in all of it, he wants them to realize one thing. He wants them to say, hold up, wait a minute. Let me put some love in it. Right? He wants them to understand that the whole reason they're doing communion, they're doing collaboration, they're doing the gifts of the spirit is because he is to be mirroring, uh, the church is to be mirroring God's love for each other and for the world. And so we've been saying that uh, form and function is our six-week Sunday morning series unpacking the insights and instruction on the form and function of a healthy church ethos from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And, and last week I explained the word ethos, but let me just refer to it again. Ethos really is the spirit or the character or the culture of a community. So whether we realize it or not, our church community has an ethos. Everything from the way our building looks to the way we look to others, the way we speak to others, the way that we worship on a Sunday morning, those things are our ethos. They speak to people. I often say what we do speaks louder than what we say. And that's the same as our church culture. What we do together, what we, how we do it together is louder than whatever we might say to a visitor. And that ethos is either good or healthy or bad or not healthy. It doesn't necessarily, not all ethos is good. But in this letter, Paul is really wanting them to develop a healthy ethos so that when people encounter the church, the spirit, the culture, or the character of that church's ethos is one that speaks contagiously of God's love to others. So as we begin to look this week at week four and this idea that love is to uh, take over everything, we realize that God desires the church to be formed and functioning with the Holy Spirit but at the center of that, he desires them to be mature in the love that he has for them. He unpacks for them the DNA of the church, but he says, hold up, wait a minute. So I invite you to turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. Far too often when we, when we attack or look or dissect this passage, we do so at weddings, at funerals, at graduations, at some type of special celebratory gathering. And I'm not saying that's bad. I have read these at weddings. In fact, I think I've read these at Derek's wedding just recently. There is something naturally poetic about this passage. It's something that describes love in great ways. In fact, I have this verse, part of this verse, hanging in my living room on a wood plaque. It's a verse that we often, though, want to pull out of its context and use it separate of what it's actually saying. <coughs> Though this passage on love may fit the context of a funeral or a wedding, it's no way, it was no way the original intent or context of that passage. And why it does offer this kind of great insight or ethic on what love looks like, we must not neglect that what it's actually referring to is the nature and the purpose of spiritual gifts and of the church's community, communal worship. I often refer to this chapter, as you've already heard, as the glue chapter. And let me explain why. In the, in the last chapter, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul introduces this beautiful idea of what happens when we are functioning with the Holy Spirit. Oh, church in Corinth, 
I don't want you to be misinformed. I want you to totally understand, don't be ignorant, that this is how the gifts work, right? There's some people that have prophecy, some have healing, some have miraculous powers. And, and at the end of that, after he tells them all to get along and unified with the way they do that, he says, I want you to eagerly or uh, intentionally pursue after these things. The, I want you to get this. Like, it's important for you not to be misinformed on this. And in the next chapter, in chapter 14, he's actually going to break down those verses and tell you what it looks like when it's in practice. He's going to tell you what prophecy looks like in practice. He's going to tell you what gifts of the Spirit, the various gifts of the Spirit look like when they're in practice. But we have this chapter 13, this one that we like to use in weddings and funerals, and we pull out as its own separate thing on love right in the middle of it. This we must see as the glue between these two chapters. That the whole reason that these two things exist, chapter 12 and chapter 14, are because of the love of God and the love that binds everything together. In the last chapter, we saw how Paul taught that the hand of God would uh, bring supernatural gifts to the surface in his community. And next chapter, he's going to break them down. But this chapter, he shows th their purpose, their love for God, their love for others, and their love for the church. So I encourage you to follow along on the screen or in your Bible as we read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mercies and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship uh, that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now let me just pause here for a minute. This passage is full of what's called poetic parallelism. And it's where you get to make a statement and then do a little shock and all colorful piece, right? Like, that guy wasn't huge. He was, like, as huge as a mountain, right? And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's using this kind of shocking descriptive language. Right after he introduces these gifts, he begins to kind of parallel them with worst case scenario. He uses this shocking language to grab the readers who are in Corinth and hearing this. Now, it, it's really important to remember what's happening in Corinth at the time. Corinth is made up of a diverse group of people who are rich and others who are really poor. There are people who are Jewish in nature. There are people that came out of pagan backgrounds. And, and more importantly, as they get together and learn to confess and honor together, there's something happening in the church in Corinth, and that's the gifts of the Spirit are beginning to pour out. And, and they really have no DNA. They have no understanding of it. And so Paul begins to give them some understanding, but he also wants to do this. He wants to put them in check because it's seemingly, from Paul's letter, we can understand that the church in Corinth is doing the gifts really, really well. They're serving the church really, really well. They are practicing these gifts with all maturity and excellence, but at the end of the day, they've done one thing. And so Paul says, hold up, wait a minute. Let me put some love in it, right? And so obviously Paul knows the church in Corinth is excelling at tongues and at prophecy, at knowledge and faith and miraculous things. 
And some of them are excellent at giving their service and their, and their physical selves into uh, even what he says, if I possess the poor and give my body into hardship. There's some people that are purposely putting themselves in the mix of trial. But at the end of the day, they've begun to lack one thing, love for being the fuel or the reason that they are doing it. Now, it's also important to know that over time, this passage has been used to explain why gifts of the Spirit are no longer happening. Though there is not too many respectable theologians that still use this as their argument for years when people would say, well, gifts of the Spirit no longer exist in the church, uh, they would use 1 Corinthians 13 as their argument. Now it's important to know, what did Paul introduce in chapter 12? Gifts of the Spirit. And what's he going to tell you how to use in chapter 14? Gives the Spirit. So why would he tell you in chapter 13 they're coming to an end? Paul would like, continues the story way after that. In fact, when you get into 2 Corinthians, he warns people to forbid the use of it. The, the, to make sure that they don't forbid the use of it. That these gifts are to be eternal. And so this chapter, and we'll talk about it as we get into it in a little bit here, has nothing to do with the ceasing of the gifts. What it does have to do with the maturity of the glue behind it to love. Paul goes on, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. This is a beautiful definition of love. And in essence, what he's doing is explaining the love that he sees encompassed in Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus lived. This is the kind of love that he defines for us. And it's important to realize that the way it's written, this love is all written around one thing, the love for truth. The love for truth. This week, in fact, I would encourage you to kind of bookmark this, dog year, underline it, and come back to it. Uh, it's important, I think, to take each one of these lines slowly. Think about each line and how it, it, it how Jesus is reflected in it or how it describes him, right? Okay, love is patient. How is Jesus patient? Then think about how you see it or don't see it in yourselves. Now, can I say that within me love is patient? And then the third thing I would encourage you to do as you read each one of these lines is ask, what would this look like in our church's ethos? If we lived out and believed that love is patience, what would that do for our ethos as a church? Paul believes that this type of love, the love that he is describing here, literally is the glue or the essential foundations not only for the Christian life, but for the reason and the way we worship, with gifts and with each other in the church, and the way that we even live together as a church. That is the, the epitome of what he's saying here. He wants to make sure they understand that love is at the essential part of it. So going on. For now we only, oh, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will be passed away, where it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, 
What is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. The greatest of these things is love, right? So now let's pause here for a minute. Because I think there's a really important thing for us to get here. This is the part where often people will say, well, this is proof that the gifts of the Spirit no longer happen in the church. Now, this is where you have to pay really close attention to the pretense that Paul uses on things. Paul says, for we know. To say we, are we included, is Paul included in that? Paul's including himself. For we know that when we prophesy, it's what? In part. Paul's not undermining the gifts. He's not saying they don't exist, that they are going to come to an end. He's saying right now in the life that we live, we have them in part. But when completeness comes, the in part disappears. What is that? Shout it out. What is in part? What is the what is the completeness? When Jesus returns. In fact, when we look at Ephesians 4, and, when, and, and in that part, when he begins to talk about the different roles that he's given to church's gifts, he tells them uh, that he has given each one of these gifts a grace that has been uh, given as Christ appointed it. And he goes on, it says that he has given this, where is it at here? For number thir- verse 13, Ephesians 4, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become more mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The completeness is either the point where we become exactly like Christ, that we know the mind of Christ, or Christ actually comes. And so it's important to not look at this and go, oh man, I just need to love people because the gifts of the Spirit are going to disappear. That is not Paul's intent. Paul's intent here is, hold up, guys, wait a minute. Let me put some love in it. Guys, the reason you are doing those things is because it is how Christ loves the church. It's how you love each other, and it's also how you love the world. But in addition to that, love is the eternal thing. It's the only thing that's going to exist because you only see in part right now. I mean, prophecy is given to the church so that you can understand what's on God's heart. Tongues are given to you so you know what words are on God's mind. But at the end of the day, those things won't matter when completeness is made because you will actually see Christ face to face. And love, then, is the most important thing. And love is the only thing that's going to last eternally. And so if you're going to be really good at anything, uh, be really good at love. I mean, I get it, Corinth. You're, you're doing these gifts and you're figuring it out. And you're speaking in tongues and prophesying. And I don't want you to be misinformed about that. But at the end of the day, guys, are you doing it because you love each other? Please be mature be in what you're doing with love. And then he goes on to say this. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. And then we shall see face to face. And there again we find that completeness part when we see face to face with Christ. Now I know in part then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. (coughs) Do you know what Corinth was known for making? I'll give you one guess. Had a whole bunch of things it was made for, but one of the things they were known for was making mirrors. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. 
one of the understandings of a mirror is it's the only time you can actually see each other face to face. Because mirrors weren't just like in your bathroom or uh, in your house or in the foyer or the vestibule before you leave. Mirrors were really rare. They were in the palaces. They were in certain public places. So you shaved, you combed your hair, tried to put on your, your berry juice makeup without ever looking in a mirror. Right? So mirrors are a big deal, and Paul tells them. You know, you guys understand the concept of mirrors. You know that's the only time you see yourself face to face. But when you get this part right is when we will see face to face with the truth. We will see Jesus. It will be completely, you will be fully known. You will know what you are to look like. Now, I find it funny that we are so quick to use this passage to explain that the gifts of the Spirit don't happen. And uh, even in the end here, Paul says, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of them is love. And, and in that, we find ourselves okay with faith, hope, and love remaining, but not the gifts of the Spirit, even though Paul will not talk about faith, hope, and love in the rest of the book of Corinthians. He does talk about the gifts of the Spirit. We must be careful to really look at what we're saying here. I think N.T. Wright sums up this passage well, and he says it like this. Love is the way of life in the new world to which by grace we are bound. We learn it here and now. We, in part, are learning it now. It is the grammar of the language we shall speak, though. There, love will be the glue that puts everything together in heaven, in the part that is yet to come. The more progress we make here, the more we learn to put away foolish things and live out love in all that we do, the better we are equipped for what is yet to come, the completeness, that moment we'll see face-to-face with Jesus. So here's Paul writing the church in Corinth, who's in the middle of hard times with a diverse community, and they're finally beginning to excel at these gifts that God God has given them. And Paul doesn't want them to be misinformed. He wants them to realize there's something they should pursue. But at the end of the day, he wants them to understand, most importantly, how love should not only drive their worship and their community, but also their gifts and their hearts. And he says, so you have prophecy and you, you can literally hear the heart of God? Hey, that's great, but hold up, wait a minute. And you can speak another language, and he uses the word there, glossia, the idea that it's even the angel language. And, and, and he says, you know, if you speak like that and you don't have the love of God in you, uh, at the end of the day, guess what? You're just making a bunch of noise. You sound like a, a band out of rhythm. And what's even interesting about this is the Cherokee Indians and other Indians uh, of, of Ameri- Native Americans were famous for doing one thing, speaking in tongues, but they had no belief in translation. So glossia, the, that term shows up in multiple cultures, and Paul says it's, it's pointless, it's noisiness, unless you have love in it. Then he goes on. I mean, have you been got, given God insight or, or discernment or wisdom or faith? That's great. Do those things all you want. But if you don't actually have love in it, if love isn't the goal of what you are pursuing through that, then perfecting that doesn't prepare you for the world that's to come. Only love does. Paul wants us to understand that love is the glue of the gifts, the nature, and the purpose of all forms that worship God. Now, as I said, don't trade off that 
hey, I, I get the love part, so I don't need to do the gifts part. I don't think that's what Paul's saying because he tells us to eagerly pursue the gifts. And the next chapter, he's going to tell us how to put them into practice. But he wants to make sure that it's the love that is being that mold mat to everything that we're doing. Is your community driven together by love? Is, is your communion driven together by love? Is the way you practice healing because I can heal or because you love the person near you? To quote theologian Mu, he says, 1 Corinthians 13 makes the point that without love, the gifts are worthless. Paul's telling them, don't be satisfied with the toys in a sandbox, right? We get it. You can build a really cool sandcastle, and, and you can speak a whole bunch of funny words. And, hey, that's cool, but at the end of the day, what really matters is that you learn the mature thing, and that is love. And, folks, do you know what saddens me the most? When you ask somebody outside of our church, not our church, but any church as a whole, what is the one thing the church is not known for? They always say, not loving people different than them. The one thing Paul says, hold up, wait a minute, let me put some love in it, is the thing that we are known for not doing well, and I don't like that. And I hope you don't like it either. So there's a few, five message points we're going to just shout out here real quick that we can take away from this passage. We are not made holy by the way that we exercise or exemplify spiritual gift on doubting faith, or but what we achieve and acquire. Those things do not declare us holy. You may be the best steward of all money, but if you're not stewarding money because you have love, it's pointless. Love is the nature of God, and it is glued to the nature and the purpose of all of God's gifts. Everything God desires, everything God gives to us is Intimating from who he is, and that's a gift of love. Exercising any holy and righteous thing without being drenched in love does not benefit the church or the individual. Let me say this in another way. You can do all the good things that you want. In fact, you might even do good things that God requires. But at the end of the day, if your heart is cold, critical, or confused, and it's not driven by love and community, then at the end of the day, what you are doing is of no benefit and of no eternal value. Lastly, uh, second to last, the attributes of love that we are given should exemplify is the love we saw embodied in Christ. All Paul is doing is saying, guys, this is what drives you, Christ. The gifts are supposed to point you to Christ and his love, and this is what that love looks like. And it's through God's love and gifts that we can see more clearly and be more fully known as we await completion. As the worship team comes forward, I leave you with this. This is the life which will bring the right sort of order to the chaos of faction fighting and spiritual jealousy within the church. This poem serves a purpose, this poem of 1 Corinthians 13. And in enjoying it and trying to make it our own, we should have our eye on the equivalent purpose in our lives and in our churches as well. I love this line from N.T. Wright. This is the life which will bring the right sort 
of order to the chaos of faction fighting and spiritual jealousy. Folks, I invite you to stand for a minute. As we come to a close, remember, our church might be 299 years old and it might have some really glory years that we remember and, and we celebrate and, and we might really like the way that we do something now, but folks, hold up. Wait a minute. Let's put some love in it. At the end of the day, if we don't have that, everything we do has no eternal value. In fact, we're just making pretty coffins for hell. At the core of everything that you do, of every way that you worship, it's important, Paul says, that we find this love with these 13 traits of just beautiful surrender. So as we sing this song, this song, Church Rise Up, this series song, I encourage you to find yourself growing in a capacity for love, for each other, for God, for his way that he longs to mold us into something greater.